The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Psalm 44. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Philosophers for many centuries have debated the existence of God. And many proofs have been offered by believers to combat the doubt, some of which have been better than others. But it seems that many arguments against the existence of God really come down to one underlying question. If a good God exists, why is there suffering? How is it possible that God can be all-powerful and all-good, and yet evil and suffering still exists? 
Now, I'm not talking about suffering that has a clear, discernible reason, though that's important to talk about too. I'm talking about the kind of suffering that isn't because of something you did, it's not because of a choice that you made, but it comes to you nevertheless. Now, these aren't insignificant challenges to the existence of God, and I don't mean to make them that. I'm not trying to sweep them under the rug as if that's a nonsense question, as we all know. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. There's all kinds of suffering, if you pause to consider it for just a second, that leaves you wondering, yeah, why does that happen in this world? There's historical things that have happened throughout the centuries that are atrocious. The Holocaust comes to mind. There's persecution that Christians face around the world to this very day simply for believing in Christ. They're killed, beheaded. Look up sometime the death of the apostles. Just comb through just the 12. If you want to add Paul to that, add Paul to that too. Just look up how they died and the things that happened to them over the course of their life for professing faith in Jesus Christ. Awful, terrible suffering. There's also everyday suffering, things that you and I can relate to and know all too well. There are abuses that happen every single day. There's abandonment of children. Death. Disease. Cancer. Now maybe the suffering in your life, if you lined it up next to the person sitting next to you, it might pale by comparison. But I think we can all relate to the various pains and sorrows that accompany this life. When we enter Christ's kingdom, we will do so scarred from head to toe. There's no doubt. This psalm this morning is part of a triad of psalms, part of three psalms, going all the way back to the beginning of the second book of psalms that Jeremy started two weeks ago. Psalm 42. And there he preached, which I think is right, the Christian's hope in great suffering is the steadfast love of God. That psalm is meant to give you hope in the midst of suffering. Last week, Nathan preached out of Psalm 43 that our vindication in suffering will come through Christ and that is the cause for great hope in God. We trust that one day our sorrow and our suffering will be vindicated. The suffering that is inflicted upon us by outside forces. We will one day experience vindication. And so that should cause us to hope in God. But this morning in Psalm 44, the question is, yeah, but what about its purpose? Why? 
Why is it a part of my life? Why is it here? This is a psalm of lament, which means that you shouldn't turn there expecting to find sunshine and daffodils. You should expect to see a genuine expression of sorrow. And it doesn't end as a result. You can read through the psalm yourself as we just did. And you'll see that it doesn't end with certainty. Like so many psalms do. Yet I will trust in the Lord. It doesn't end that way. It ends with a hopeful petition. There's hope in it. But it is a petition. He even asks God. Are you asleep? Do you hear this? Are you paying attention at all to what's going on? Or have you fallen down on the job? It leaves you with some uncertainty. But it's open-ended. It doesn't resolve the agony that is experienced by God's people. In the psalm, it's broken down into three stanzas. And we're going to see those stanzas as we go through the text this morning. We're going to see a past precedent that he identifies in verses 1 to 8. They're all P's, so it's helpful. It's easy to memorize, right? It's easy to know. There's a past precedent, 1 to 8. There is a present predicament. And then finally, there is a passionate predicament plea. Past precedent, present predicament, and a passionate plea. Look at verses 1 to 3. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. With you, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the people's But them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. We've now entered into the second book in the book of Psalms. And if you notice, as you read through the book of Psalms, you will see that it's carefully divided into five sections. And the second section of the book starts there in Psalm 42. And you may have noticed that the Psalms that we're seeing now are less and less frequently written by David. Whereas almost all of Psalm 1 to 41 is written by David, most of them anyway. Now we're starting to see some psalms that are not written by David. Now most of the psalms that we're going to be reading this this summer, uh, from 41 all the way up to 50, most of them are going to be written by a group called the Sons of Korah, who were basically a band of temple singers, essentially. Court uh, musicians, temple musicians, and they were sons of a man named Korah, which stands to reason why they would be called the sons of Korah. They're a band of temple singers, and they trace their lineage all the way back to the days of Moses, 
and at least several hundred years after David's day. And so when book one of the Psalms, uh, we, we saw that the main purpose in Psalm 1 to 41 is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through his anointed king, which initially is David, but then ultimately will be Jesus. And we've been seeing that in 1 Samuel. We've also seen that a good bit in the Psalms. But book two is a little bit of a shift. We will certainly get some Psalms written by David. Many of them will show you threats to David's kingdom, times where he was personally facing trial and tribulation. But book two seems to be mostly about the kingdom that was originally given to David, now handed down to subsequent generations. And there is a question as to whether or not the kingdom will last. God has established this kingdom in David, and will the kingdom actually endure? Will it see a peaceful transition of power, so to speak? Will it actually make it as it's handed down from generation to generation? So you will see a good deal of suffering in book two. You will see a good deal of questions like the one we're dealing with today, how to deal with suffering. You'll see a lot of those similarities as we go from psalm to psalm. Even when we get to David, there's many psalms where David is dealing with sin, where he's running from uh, uh, the hand of Saul, and, and various other, other things that we've, we've seen so frequently. Uh, and it's a question as to how will God's kingdom actually endure? So there's some question as to whether or not this psalm that we're reading today, was it written when the people of Israel were in exile? And is that where the suffering that they're talking about comes from? Well, it's, it's still a question and we don't really know. But it's that kind of suffering that the author seems to be dealing with. So we see the author is recalling these stories of God's salvation in the past. You can see he opens up the first three verses with understanding that and recalling counting that and, and telling about all the stories that their fathers told them. We've heard those stories. We know those stories. We know that you are the God in the days of Joshua when the Israelites went on the conquest through the promised land. You were the one that drove out the enemies before those people. We've heard those stories from our fathers and we know that they're true. But the key detail that he is clear to highlight in all of this is that it was by the hand of God that the nations were driven out. That's what he hones in on. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, you drove out the nations. You afflicted. Verse 3, not by their own sword did they win the land. The key detail that the fathers were clear to pass on was, we possess this land. But it was not by our own might. God was the one going before us, and all of the nations were driven out by his hand. Look, if you want to, if you want to just think about a miracle in the Old Testament, think about piddling small group of slaves who are exiled out of Egypt, out of slavery, set free by their captors, and then waltz in 40 years later to prime real estate and take up residence there. How does that happen? Imagine that for just a second. That a small group of slaves are set free 
and in 40 years, occupy Times Square. All of it. It's impossible. Unless it is the hand of God that does the driving. So the fathers were clear to pass that on to their kids. Make no mistake about it. We didn't possess this land by our own might or by the strength of our own swords. God drove the nations out. God afflicted them. He spared us, but he afflicted them. So what does he do in verses 4 to 8? He shifts to the present day. He says, through you we push down our foes. Verse 6, not in my bow do I trust. Verse 7, you have saved us from our foes. You see what he's saying here? In other words, I got the message. I not only heard what my fathers were telling me, and we not only heard that, we took that message to heart, and we understand it all too well. You are the one that pushes down our foes. When we go into battle, who goes before us? What is the reason for our victory? Well, it is God who is on the battlefield who strikes down our enemies. We understand the stories that our forefathers have told us, and we know that we are incapable of saving ourselves. It's you who have saved us. You are the one who drove out our enemies. We don't trust in our own sword. We're not trusting in our own armies. God is the one who has worked salvation for us. So the past precedent that is set here in the first eight verses is that God has set, has set his people on fertile soil. He's the one that saves them. They don't save themselves. And what the psalmist is recognizing is that is not only true, but we don't doubt that. So what's happening to the psalmist, in other words, is not a result of pride. The humility that he's experiencing in this psalm is not because he's been trusting in his own hand. We've seen that a fair amount in 1 Samuel and things like that, where David is tempted to do that. that that's not what's going on here. He says, we understand that. And, and this precedent of God's salvation of his people makes the present predicament so confusing. Look in verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoiled. So if, if God is the one who makes and breaks a people, if it's on his shoulders that one is either saved or condemned, then wouldn't it stand to reason, when I suffer, I have to look at God and say, why have you made me like this? Don't you see where the question comes from? In not only the mind of the psalmist, but in the mind of so many in our culture today. If you're telling me that God is good, and you're telling me that he is sovereign, then why is he doing this to me? God, we go out on the battlefield and you don't go out with our armies. We, we encounter the foe, and we, we have to turn back. We're the ones retreating, not them. Why? This is the question 
of suffering that is so prevalent in the workplace, in your friend groups, with your neighbors? This is a question that almost everybody is dealing with at one point or another. Even the most faithful of Christians will encounter this question. But you understand, this is both the sentiments of the one writing the hymn and the feelings of the nation as a whole. This is reflected not only in the person actually penning this psalm, but, it, but the whole nation is feeling this. Several times he goes back and forth from saying us, like in verses, uh, verse 11, he says, You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations, perhaps in exile. But then look at verse 15. The psalmist feels God's rejection personally. He says, All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. Perhaps you can relate to the kind of suffering or feelings of the psalmist. The suffering that this world has to offer, it comes in many forms, and it ranges from spiritual to physical, although probably all of them are spiritual, truthfully. But none of them are easy to bear. We have to endure depression, the loss of children, suffer abuses of all kinds, and not to mention the injustices that Nathan talked about last week that are so often faced by the poor, by the weak, by those who have no power. And to make matters worse, suffering doesn't just visit the house of the evildoer. Oh, that it did. If Job's friends were right, and in order to suffer, you had to do something really bad to deserve it. If only that was the case. That's not how it goes. Look at verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. He says, we're the good guys. Why are we suffering? Now, he's not claiming that the whole nation is perfect. We know that's not true. What he is saying like he says at the beginning, we know the stories of old. We know the stories of your people. We know the covenant. In other words, we go to church every Sunday. We even go to Sunday school. That's a special dispensation of grace. Goodness gracious. You know how early you have to get up to go to Sunday school? Moms, amen somebody, right? That's when your kids sleep in the latest, is you gotta go to Sunday school. No, he's saying we go to church, we pray, we read our Bibles, we tithe. We're your people, Lord. It's, it's not supposed to happen to us. The plague of suffering is supposed to be on the house of the one that stays home from church, the one who attends Bedside Baptist, St. Mattress Episcopal. Right? You know? You missed your target. He's next door. I see him in there. 
out there grilling on Sunday morning, getting ready for the football game. I see him. He's the one you're supposed to strike down, not me. There's no discernible reason that we have for suffering like this, he says. He concludes in verse 22 with this stanza, and he says, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, we have to ask, just for a second, what does he mean for your sake? For God's sake, we are killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It seems that what his conclusion is meant to say is that suffering is the product of being called the people of God. Do you see the level of despair that he feels? This is what I get for being one of your people. I suffer. It is for your sake that we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, it's not a bug, it's a feature. This is not a glitch in the system that God forgot to work out. This is a product of being called his people. If I am associated with God, that means I am going to suffer. Derek Kidner says this, Suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. The price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. And the psalmist feels it. If I am allied with you, and if the world hates you, then the world is going to hate me. Does that sound familiar? That might be the most difficult news that any preacher has to share. Especially because there are awful tragedies out there. Some of which you may have experienced in your life. Awful, heinous tragedies out there. Mountains of horrendous evil that are done against God's people all over the world. And I'm up here saying, along with the psalmist, that I'm afraid that is the price of admission. There are people today that are losing their heads because of their association with Christ. And you see that on the news and you go, that's a bug in the system. That shouldn't be the way it is. And then the Bible comes in and says, it's not a bug. It's a feature. It's a product of being associated with God. So to hear in the midst of that kind of suffering that this is part of God's good purposes for you 
it might be easy before or maybe even after suffering. But if any of you are going through it, it is hard to hear. You're telling me this is good. That's not at all what I want to hear. You might be asking yourself, what possible good purpose could God have for bringing about suffering in my life? I want you to take your Bible. We're going to leave the psalm for just a second. If you have one of those Bible markers, just put it in there. If not, take your little program and put it in Psalm 44, because we can come back. But I want you to turn to Romans 8. And I want us to see a couple of things. First, we are going to see that the Apostle Paul cites this psalm in Romans 8. But I want you to understand what he's talking about first. So we kind of got to go through 8 in a very high-level overview just to get us to the point where he actually cites this psalm because it happens toward the end of the chapter. First, I want you to look at chapter 8, verse 1 and see what he says there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, somebody. That's a memory verse. That's one of those ones that you recite all the time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what he means by that is to say that in Christ, God has removed condemnation from his children. You see that? Those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So from his children, he has removed all condemnation. So as he deals with suffering in this chapter... One thing you can rule out from possibility is that when his children suffer, it is not because he is condemning them. It is not because he hates them. The principle is simple. When Christ suffered on the cross, God was right there in that scene on Calvary, pouring out all the wrath he could ever have towards you. So his wrath toward you or his condemnation against you does not exist anymore for anyone that is in Christ. Now, he may correct you. He may discipline you. He may move you towards repentance by correcting you from some wrong that you've done. But you were adopted by him. And once you were adopted by God, he is never turning loose of you. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then the question comes, well, how do I know if I'm one of his? We'll look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Notice that he doesn't say, 
You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we affirm all the important doctrines. That's not what he says. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So proof that you are his is that in the midst of suffering, your soul cries out to your Father who is in heaven. That's evidence that you are His. That's proof that you are His. My children are mine legally. According to the state, they belong to me. So if they do something right now that causes them to be in legal jeopardy, the police are going to come looking for me because I am their legal guardian. I'm their parent. And I'm going to say it was my wife. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but if you talk to any child, they don't understand that. They don't understand all the legal things that make you their parent. When I come home, my sons or my daughter don't say to me, well, what do we have here? My paternal legal guardian has breached the entryway of my childhood domicile. No. They scream, daddy's home. And they run to me or from me. It just depends on the day. <laughs> to my children, I'm their dad. That's how they know me. Paul's point here is that the Holy Spirit's work in us is to create in us the heart of affection toward God in which he moves from the holy and transcendent God of the universe to Father. Now, does he stay the God of the universe? Yes, all of those doctrinal realities are absolutely true and need to be affirmed and taught and understood and believed. They're tremendously important. But regardless of what my children understand about me or not, regardless of all the intricate details that they understand about my legal guardianship over them, the legality of my fatherhood, while it is important, is not the determining factor to them in my fatherhood of them. It's their relationship with me. They relate to me not in terms of legality, but with terms of endearment. So how is it that I know I am in Christ is because I relate to my Father in heaven with terms of endearment. I understand him as Abba, which means Daddy. I understand him as father. And if I'm his child, he says, then what does that mean? Well, that means that I stand to inherit all the things that Christ inherited. That is resurrection. That is eternal life. That is eternal fellowship 
with God. That is, entrance into his kingdom, a seat at his table, being included in the family of God. I stand to inherit all of those things and many more that I don't even know about. But do you notice that part at the end? Provided we suffer with him. Wait. Let's discuss this. Suffering isn't a bug. It's a feature. But why? What is the purpose of suffering? Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. One purpose of the suffering is that suffering brings about that inward groaning, that deep cry in our hearts to call God our Father. Do you see that groaning that's now coming to the surface? Because of all the suffering that we're enduring, what does that suffering produce? It produces this cry within us that says, Father, where are you? The very cry that we've been reading about in this psalm is generated by the suffering from the Spirit. Second, it produces in us a desire for God's kingdom to come to the full. That's what he says. We, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is the resurrection of the dead. That is Christ's return. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for that day. It's the second to the last verse in the whole Bible in Revelation. John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what suffering produces in his people. But the third, there's a third reason still to come. Look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we could spend forever on those three verses. And I'm tempted to. But I won't. Okay? This is called restraint. All right? What he says, and, and remember, all of this is in connection to suffering. What he says is that God's good purposes in your suffering is to bring about your entrance into glory. That it's part of a chain of events which he has ordered in your life to bring about your glory. And he is going to ensure that it includes suffering. As Paul says, we can't enter unless we suffer with him. We're not heirs with him unless we also suffer like he's suffered. And God is saying, not only have I called you and chosen you, but I have ensured that you are going to suffer like he suffered. 
It's a bug. It's not a bug. It's a feature. Having forgiven us in Christ, he has removed condemnation. That's verse 1. He has then put within us his spirit that confirms to us that we are indeed redeemed and there's no condemnation for us. That's 15 to 17. The suffering then comes to us as a means of growing that longing for God's kingdom and for this world to be free from sin. That's 18, 21 and following. They then, those sufferings, conform us into the image of Christ. That in the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk, that we might be like Christ in every single way. So that means that we're growing through our suffering more and more to depend on and desire God's rule over our lives. And he's ensuring that it's happening. So then Paul says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, we, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Heirs with Christ, remember. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is our purpose. That he is set before the foundation of the world. That to enter glory, we must suffer to become like Christ. At the end of our psalm, you can flip back there. There is a plea by the author for the future. He says in verse 23, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You understand, by quoting Verse 22, in Romans 8, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is the answer to the psalmist's plea. He is God's response. If the tribulation 
or the distress, or the persecution, or the famine, or the nakedness, or danger, or sword. Which is to say, if the suffering in this present time only ever ended in death and meaningless suffering, and that was it, then there would be no reason to be the people of God. But... Because God has good purposes for his children in suffering. Through your suffering, he demonstrates his glory by working it for your good and for his glory. Then Paul says, for his sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, your suffering is for your good and for his glory. So the psalmist's plea at the end of Psalm 44 is answered in Christ. In other words, all the philosophers who debate endlessly about suffering being in the world and God supposedly being good. How can uh, there be a good, all-powerful God and suffering still exist? Paul is saying, you are the response to that. That the eternal good God has good purposes for suffering. That's why. Now we can't conceive that it would ever be possible that suffering brings about a good But when you see a person who has been stricken with cancer or who has lost a child or has been who has suffered for their whole life who clings to the feet of Jesus that's your answer how can suffering produce good here i am at the foot of the cross claiming nothing of my own but only that which he gives me. All the suffering that I've ever gone through has only pushed me further and further and further into dependence on Christ. That's the good purpose. That's what it's doing. But you notice... The hard part about Psalm 8, I mean about uh, Romans 8, is he says over and over and over again, it is only for those in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation, not for the entire world, there's still condemnation to come. For those who are in Christ Friend, I would challenge you in your unbelief. Instead of letting suffering push you further away from God, maybe it should make you consider that in Christ, suffering has a purpose. You're going to suffer whether you're in Christ or out of Christ. That's a product of a fallen world. But only in Christ does your suffering actually have meaning. It's producing for you an eternal glory to be revealed. Repent of your sin. 
your unbelief and run to Jesus who stands willing and able to forgive you of everything you've ever thought or will think, everything you've ever done or will do, and bring you into eternal glory. Repent and confess him as Lord. Have you suffered in the past, Christian? Do you understand that God knows Not only does he know and that he saw it, he actually brought it about in your life to conform you to the image of Christ. He has an aim and a purpose, and his purpose is to use it for your ultimate good, which will bring about eternal life for you. And on that day, when he ushers you into eternity, you will see that all of these scars that we walk into the kingdom with were totally worth it. Are you currently suffering? Well, that longing that is within you for God to come and to relieve your suffering is what God is producing in your suffering. It's good. Lean into it. Desire God to come like the psalmist. Plead passionately that he would awake and resolve this. The point is that your suffering might be a mystery to you. You might be asking, why is this happening to me? But understand that it is not a mystery to God. It is intentional. And as hard as that is to wrap your mind around, know that he sees, he knows, and your suffering is evidence that he is at work in your life as he drives you further and further to the foot of the cross. In absolute humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I pray. For each of us. We either have suffered. We are suffering. Or we will endure suffering. It's coming for all of us. We don't make it through this world unscathed. Your word tells us that you you assure us of that. But I pray for the souls of each one in this room that you would give us help, that you would give us comfort and peace, that you would hold us fast to your word, that we would cling to Christ, that when we leave this world, We would do so having nothing to our name except the righteousness provided to us by Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.